Uh, before we get to our text this morning, uh, I wanted to take uh, a minute uh, to, to, to recognize um, some of the things that have come to light this, this past week in terms of uh, the unmarked graves that were uncovered at the uh, residential school, closed residential school in Kamloops. I want to take a, a moment to pray for them. I think it's important that we as a church uh, recognize uh, the, the gravity of the situation, the, the grievousness. I mean, it just should grieve our hearts uh, to think again of, of the independent school system, what it was, the fact that the church was part of it. Um, it struck me that that school in Kamloops, I noticed, was, was only closed in 1977, which is just the year before I was born. Uh, so this is not ancient history. Uh, these wounds are still very, very fresh. And uh, it should be our heart, I think, as a church to, uh, to first of all, to, to listen, to not look away from this, to not uh, turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to, to what has happened, uh, to recognize that sadly, uh, that this was done partly in the name of Jesus, which is just so, so sad that there were children taken from their homes um, and, that, um, and that the church was a part of it. Uh, we can't ignore that. We shouldn't try to downplay that. Um, we also, I think, need to be part of whatever we can do uh, to bring healing and restoration. And so that's, that's in particular why I want to pray for our First Nations neighbors, those in our community. And, uh, and so I'm going to do that. And what I'd like us to do is, uh, is just to stand, just in recognition of the gravity of the situation, uh, just to be able to say that we, we hear your hurts and that we want to pray for you. That's really what we're doing. And so I'd invite you to stand, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll move on. Uh, Lord Jesus, it is such a difficult uh, thing to imagine uh, taking children from their homes, many of them being uh, abused, uh, many of them dying, uh, obviously with all these, these graves that are being uh, discovered. Uh, Lord, and the fact that there were, there were people from uh, the church that were, that were running these schools, Lord. Lord, we pray for those that were directly um, hurt by the system, Lord. We pray those that are still alive, descendants of those who were in the residential schools and, and for the, the hurt uh, physical, emotional, psychological trauma that is involved with that, we, we pray for healing for them. We pray that there would be comfort. We pray that as these things are brought to light fully, we pray that that would be part of the process of, of bringing healing. Uh, Lord, we pray for all the officials involved that, that they would put whatever resources are necessary into, into addressing this, into, into uncovering things fully. And we pray for those church officials who are involved also, Lord, that there would be an acknowledgement of wrong and that there would be the steps towards genuine uh, healing and forgiveness. So, so Lord, uh, you, you, you call us to mourn with those who mourn. There's a lot of mourning going on in our nation, and rightly so. Uh, we pray, ultimately, that there would be comfort and healing and justice uh, found in you. And we know that's difficult when, um, when the church has been implicated. So I, I pray that you would, um, you would use us, use the church as it is now, those who are faithful. Lord, help us to demonstrate what it means to genuinely love our neighbors and love our country and, and to love you. So, so please use us and we pray for your, your help in the situation where it's difficult to know what to do. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing in Luke chapter 12. And uh, we're going to be here for a few more weeks before we transition to our, our uh, sermon series in the Psalms, which is going to be the summer. 
Uh, but I'd like to turn us to Luke 12, verses 35 to 48. And uh, as a way kind of into this text, um, I want to reflect on something that happened in the 1980s. 1989, there was an earthquake in California. Um, you might remember it. If you were alive back then, uh, I was 11, and I do remember this. I remember uh, this in particular because this earthquake happened uh, in Santa Cruz, so just south of San Francisco, and it was during a World Series game. Do you remember this? And so on TV, uh, the whole stadium started to shake. I remember seeing it on TV, just like being fixated by this. I remember seeing this uh, big freeway viaduct that was just collapsed. These striking images. Uh, the other thing that I remember, though, is the, what happened after. Because after that, at least where I was, there was this huge push towards earthquake preparedness. Do you remember this? I can't, I can't remember if we had earthquake drills before, but we definitely did after. Um, I remember even in our neighborhood that we had neighbors come over and we watched this movie called The Big One. It was a VHS tape and it told us how to survive an earthquake, how to prepare for an earthquake, what you should do during an earthquake. And I remember sitting with our neighbors and making a plan what we were going to do because we wanted to get ready. And that's what we did. At school, there were earthquake... Um, you know, drills, the earthquake kits at home. We had an earthquake kit in our, in our house and in our car. I mean, we, we were ready. We had everything that we needed. We had food, we had supplies. It was great. The only challenge, though, that I, that I also noticed is that it was difficult to maintain that level of readiness, like a constant state of readiness, because I remember years later going into our crawl space and finding the food that we had um, there for us, and it was all expired, like it would not have been very good if an earthquake hit. I also remember in our earthquake kit at home, we had some emergency cash, and I definitely remember some times when we needed to pay for pizza, and we dipped into the emergency cash, and we said we would re replenish it. I'm not sure if we did, but, but it's difficult. It's difficult to be um, constantly ready, and yet, of course, it's very important I mean, it was, it was good that we had kits. It was good that we were prepared because of an earthquake hit. It would, be, it would be devastating. It's good to be ready. And that's what our text is about today. Jesus is, is teaching about the importance of being ready, uh, not for a natural disaster, but for something much more significant, potentially much more devastating, which is his second coming, the return of Jesus. Uh, in fact, here's one verse right from sort of the middle of our text, just summarizes it nicely. Verse 40. He says, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, Son of Man uh, is Jesus. Uh, it's a title from Daniel, from the Old Testament, that he uses for himself. Uh, it speaks to his deity. Uh, it speaks to his final triumph. And I think it's interesting that Jesus is already talking about his second coming, even though his first coming is not done yet. I mean, he hasn't yet gone to the cross, and yet he's speaking about when he's going to come back. In fact, this happens a lot. Throughout the New Testament, uh, it's mentioned 300 times. Every book of the New Testament, except for three, has a mention of Jesus returning uh, back to earth. Now, uh, there's disagreement in the church in terms of the how and the when, the details of it, but there's universal agreement all, all across the Christian church that Jesus will come back and that it is the final answer to all of the issues in our world uh, when it comes to uh, evil, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to injustice, uh, we know that the return of Christ means uh, an answer to all of those things. It will be a very, very good thing when Jesus returns, if you are ready, if we are prepared. And that, that's what our text is all about. So I'm going to give you uh, one main point that we're going to come back to again and again, because it's kind of the main point that Jesus makes over and over, um, which is this. Uh, Jesus will return, and there will be great blessings 
for those who are ready and severe consequences for those who are not. So Jesus will return. There will either be great blessings or severe consequences depending on your readiness. And this, um, Jesus actually makes this point twice. There's kind of two sections in our text. He goes over it once, then comes back to it. And I, I'm just going to say, if Jesus is hitting the same point twice in one sermon, you know that it's important. So we want to take it seriously, and we want to unpack it fully. So we're going to come back to the same point again and again, and just work our way through the text slowly. And we're going to begin uh, with verses 35 and 36, where Jesus tells a parable, kind of a short parable, uh, about waiting. So here it is, uh, the beginning of our text, verse 35. He says, Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So that's the setup. That's the, not a very long parable. The, the, the setting is that there's a wedding feast. If you know anything about uh, Middle Eastern, certainly Jewish wedding feasts, you know that they are not short. Uh, they're very long. And so they go on for days and days and days. It's a grand celebration. And that means that the servants uh, back at, at the house, they don't know when their master's going to come back. Could be early, early evening, middle of the night, could be the next morning, could be the next day. They don't know. And if they're to be faithful servants, they need to be ready all the time. And so he, he mentions, Jesus mentions two things that they need to do to be ready. They need to be dressed for action. Uh, dressed for action uh, means they had long robes back then. And if you were doing anything active, like if you were a soldier, certainly if you were working around the house, what you would do is you would gird your loins. You ever heard that expression, gird your loins? It means you take your, your robe and you pull it up and you tuck it into your belt so that your legs can move freely. So a servant who is ready to serve is, can, is able to do that, right? You're dressed for action. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, the lamps, right? The lamps need to be burning. Uh, that's sort of obvious, need to be full of oil. The wicks need to be trimmed uh, so that they burn bright. Now, both of these things, I think for us, are not really readily applicable. Uh, our legs can move freely, most of what we wear, um, and we have electricity. So this is, this is not the, the point for us, but I do think this idea of a, of a warm, bright, uh, welcoming home is something that we can identify with. I mean, I, it made me think of the times when I have late meetings, like 9.30, 10 o'clock. For me, that's really late. I'm like way past my bedtime. And I drive home, and the, the house is mostly dark because most everyone's asleep. But if I open the door, and up at the top of the stairs, I see a light on, I feel just great about the end of the day because I know that Dawn has stayed up for me. She, she's waiting. It means we can talk. We can, I don't have to come into a, to a dark room. And it, it makes me feel loved. It makes me feel cared for. Uh, that's what the picture is here. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, I'm not saying Don is my servant. I'm just saying, I'm just pointing to the fact that that kind of welcoming, that feels really great, that you're, that you're served well. And for these servants to be faithful to their master, that, that's what they needed to do. And then we notice next in the text that the master is very pleased. So here's the, the reward they get, the blessing. Verse 37 and 38. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So this is a, a, a surprise, definitely a surprise for the people listening. 
Because this master who comes home and finds his servants who've been so faithful, instead of sitting down and having them serve him, he, he flips it. He tells them, sit down at the table. He puts on the servant's cloak and he begins to serve them. Now, this is surprising for us because you wouldn't expect it. But for, them, for the people back then, it would have been shocking. Because they would have thought to themselves, what self-respecting master dresses like a servant? What self-respecting master serves his servants? It doesn't make any sense. So why is Jesus doing this? Well, he, I mean, he wants for people to start asking these questions because he's laying kind of breadcrumbs for people to understand who he is and why he has come, what kind of master he is. He's a master who serves his servants. And he says it directly a little bit later on. This is recorded in Matthew uh, chapter 20, verse 28. He says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is doing is laying, even in this, even though he's talking about his second coming, right now, he's laying that the groundwork for people to understand, this is why I've come now, to serve my people, to lay down my life, so that they might be one with him. It's just a beautiful glimpse of, of the gospel, of the heart of Christ. The other thing we see in, um, in the New Testament, in terms of this, this sort of final when Jesus returns, is that there will be a feast like this, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all who serve Jesus will enjoy a grand meal with him. It'll be a meal with everyone sitting at the table together, everyone eating, feasting, uh, drinking. It'll be a grand celebration because the kingdom of God is finally fully here. We fully realized. It'll be a wonderful, joyful thing. But to be at the table, uh, you need to be ready. You, you need to be faithful. You need to be counted faithful by God. The challenge, of course, is that the timing of his arrival is, is not clear. In fact, uh, the parable itself, what he's teaching us here is, is that you, you won't know when he's going to return. Um, Jesus uh, kind of takes the first parable and then makes a little mini parable in verse 39. Uh, he says this, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. So he kind of shifts the focus. Now it's on the master. And the master is pictured in his house and there's a thief in the area. And what he's saying is if the, if the master knew the hour that the thief was coming, of course he would be ready. I mean, he'd have the guard dogs out, he'd have the alarm set, he'd be totally ready. But the point is, that's not how it works with thieves. They don't tell you when they're coming. So if you know there's a thief in the area, you have to be ready all night long. You have to be in a constant state of, of readiness. And that's what Jesus is saying to his, to his people that we need to be like that. We need to be ready all the time. In fact, uh, verse 40, which we heard before, I'll say it again. He says, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so we'll go back to our main point, right? Jesus will return. There will be great blessings for those who are ready. We've seen some of that. And severe consequences for those who are not. We're going to see that in the next section. But the key here is that we need to be ready and we need to be ready at every moment because we don't know when he is going to return. So I think we should just pause for a minute and think about this call to be ready. What does it, what does it mean to be ready? As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, just as a human being, what, is, what does it mean for us to be ready? Well, I think a good way to answer this question is to think back on uh, some of the teaching that Jesus has done uh, just prior to this. So in our last few weeks, if you remember, two weeks ago, we heard a parable about a rich farmer. And the rich farmer had everything that he needed. 
He had abundant material goods. In fact, he was going to tear down his barns, build other barns. He had so much stuff. He was very ready for life on this earth, but we saw in the parable he was not ready to meet God. And the reason he was not ready is because he was still in his sin. His heart was, was wrapped up in the things of this, of this world. And so he was not ready to meet God. So what we see there is that to be ready for when Jesus returns, we need to accept him as Savior and Lord. That we need to be free from our sin. We need to believe the gospel. We need to believe that Jesus came the first time for a reason. That we really needed help. That on our own, in our sin, we were in severe trouble. And yet because he came, lived a perfect life for us, died on the cross on our behalf, and then was, was raised to new life, we now can have hope that our sin is no longer counted against us. So the first way that we are ready is to have faith. To have faith that Jesus came and died for us. We were free from our sin. But it's, it's not just faith that's essential. Because what we always see in the New Testament is that uh, faith, the next thing that comes with it is a life of faithfulness. Is that we live in light of what Jesus has done. So, so firstly, how are we ready? Faith. Secondly, though, we live a life that honors Jesus. And we saw that last week. Do you remember what Jesus said as a way to combat anxiety? He said, what you do is you need to seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. That's, that's essentially describing what it means to live a life for Jesus. That at the center of our life is not the things of this world, but Jesus and his kingdom. So if we are to be ready, then we are to be people of faith and we are to be a people living out that faith. This is why I think Jesus used uh, the parable of, of a household with servants that are active, actively serving. He didn't give the picture of like scholars or academics or intellectuals. Not that we shouldn't think and contemplate Jesus. We should, but we also need to be actively serving him in our lives. Which I think is a challenge for us. I mean, this idea of a servant because for us, the idea of a servant today, um, probably the, the parallel that we would make is, is like an employee, like a job. And when we think of an employee, we think of someone, uh, us probably, who goes to a job for a certain amount of time, gets paid for it, and then gets to come back to our life, to, to the things that we really enjoy. Uh, so when we're going to serve uh, in our job from nine to five or whatever it is, that's great. But then we come home and then, and then we're able to fulfill our passions, right? It's on the weekend that we get to really live our lives, right? We go hang gliding, we go kayaking, we do parkour, none of which I do. But those exciting things, we like garden, I don't know what we do. We do things that, are, that, that captivate our heart because that's what our life is really about. Our job is not really what our life is about. But back in the ancient times, those two worked together. Because if you were a servant, it encompassed your entire life. You served wholeheartedly. You lived with your master. You, you, your entire life was poured out in serving your master. And, and that's unfamiliar to us. But can I just say, if, if Downton Abbey has taught us anything, it's that that kind of service can be filled with dignity and virtue, right? Has anyone watched? Okay, anyway. You should, it's good. Okay. The point is, this kind of service is our entire life. And that we do it um, because we love our master. See, Jesus is not just someone that we serve because we are obligated to. It's we serve him because we love him and we love him because he first loved us. So the questions that we need to be asking ourselves in terms of readiness, are we ready, is number one, are we people of faith? Have we been, do we have an answer for our sin? 
And if you don't, if you're here this morning or if you're tuning in online and you don't, that, that can happen today. It's simply acknowledging, recognizing that Jesus did come for a reason. That without him, uh, we would be in trouble in our sin. And so the, the way that we approach Jesus is, is then one of submission. One of saying, Jesus, I, I thank you. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again. I believe that I needed that to be saved. Would you please forgive me of my sin? That, that's an expression of the heart which has been redeemed, been changed, been saved. And then from that, then we have to live a life of service. And that's the part I think that, um, that we need to really think about. Because a life of service, if you really, if you think about it, what that means is that whenever Jesus were to come back, like any moment of any day, he would arrive in your life and he would be pleased with what you were doing and why you were doing it. And that's daunting. That, that requires some thought. Because if he came back right now, I think we'd be like, phew, I'm sitting in church. This is great. This is what my life's about, Jesus. I'm just worshiping you all, all the time, right? I mean, when we're doing the obvious Christian things, of course, we would we'd be happy for him to come back. But the thing is, it, it doesn't just have to be obviously Christian things. It's not just when we're reading our Bible or caring for orphans or that kind of thing, which is great. We should be doing that. There are other things that also display readiness, that aren't as obviously like Christian-y. For example, you may be part of a softball league. You may be part of a team from work. And this group of people has no interest in the things of God. And that's part of the reason you joined the team. You, you like softball, but also you're thinking, man, I would love to be able to get to know these people more, have them know me more, have an opportunity to share my faith. If, if it comes up, that's my intention here. It's a missional activity. Man, that's being ready for Jesus. It could also be that you do like kayaking. And you spend time in the outdoors. And when you're there, you really worship God. I mean, you look around, you think to yourself, man, God, you made such an amazing world. It stirs your heart to worship and praise. See, to live for Jesus is just as much about your heart and your motivation as it is about the activity itself. Now, it needs to be both. And again, we need to think carefully. Because the master in that parable would not have been pleased to get home and find servants just with good intentions. Like if he had come back and the, uh, the house was dark and they were asleep, uh, their robes were out, right? They weren't ready for anything. And he woke them up and they said, oh, master, we, we really meant to be ready. We were, we were really planning, but we got tired and we fell asleep. I'm sorry. He would not have been pleased. It's, it's not, Jesus is not going to be pleased if he comes back and finds out that we had a lot of good intentions, but we weren't actually serving him. We need to be honest about the things that are occupying our lives. For example, if you are part of that softball team, and you've been on that team for two years and you have never had any spiritual conversations. You've never even tried. I think you need to be honest and say, this is more about me than it is about serving Jesus. If, if you find hours each week to kayak, but no time for the word of God, at a certain point you have to say, I, I think this is more about me than it is about Jesus. And if that's the case, listen, just be honest. Jesus already knows what's going on in your life. He's not surprised by it. The best thing that we can do is simply be honest. Confess. Confess, Jesus, I'm, there's a lot of things in my life that are taking up time that have nothing to do with you. Help me. Here's a sample prayer that some of you might want to pray. Lord Jesus, I bought this PlayStation 5 because I wanted to glorify you with it. I've been playing uh, seven, eight hours a day, but I'm beginning to think that it might be more about me than it is about you. It's like that kind of prayer. You understand what I'm saying? Some of you that might hit home. What I'm saying is if we're honest... 
then we can experience forgiveness and hopefully we are compelled to look at everything in our life and really ask the question, what's my motivation here? Is there any aspect of this that actually does honor and glorify the Lord? Because to be ready, it's not just enough to call yourself a Christian. It's not just enough to do a few, a few things. We need to actually live for Jesus. Not because we need to earn anything, but because a true servant enjoys serving their master. So this aspect of, of kind of identity and service, it actually is brought up uh, in the midst of while Jesus is talking. Uh, Peter, you know, always Peter, always quick to, to ask a question. Uh, in verse 41, look at what Peter asks. He says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? See what he's saying there? He, he's, he's saying, Jesus, who are, you, who are you talking to here? Like, is this for us, your disciples, or is this for the crowd, like the rest, or is it, or is it for both? Because I think what was going on in Peter's mind is, is Jesus, you're talking to kind of everyone, right? Because for us, your disciples, I mean, we're ready, aren't we? I mean, we're the ones who chose to follow you. We're the ones who gave up everything. If anyone's ready, it's got to be us. We're, we're ready, right? Jesus' response is not necessarily. Not exactly. Because readiness is about the genuineness of your heart and the faithfulness of your lives. And so Jesus, this is where he kind of starts to repeat himself, but what he's going to emphasize is, the, is the, the results of your kind of service, the way that you're living. And so uh, he begins this way. Here's verse 42 and, and 44. He says, um, Who then is the faithful and the wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So there again, very clearly, uh, it's the servant who is faithful, the servant who's doing the thing that they're supposed to do. That's the one who is blessed. Uh, but notice, notice the kind of blessing. This I think is interesting. Do you see the reward that that servant got? I'll just read verse 44 again. It says, truly I say to you, he, that's the master, will set his servant over all his possessions. So the picture there is that the servant was in charge of a little bit of the master's house, but now his reward for serving well is to be in charge of the whole, I don't know, the whole estate. Which is interesting because it sort of seems like the reward for being faithful is more work, doesn't it? You might not have noticed this before, but this actually is what is taught in terms of the reward that we will get for being faithful here in this life is that in heaven, in the eternal state, that there will be more opportunities for us to be faithful more opportunities for us to serve. And I think this is, this is good for us to think about because the impression of heaven that we tend to have is that there's a lot of leisure time. There's, I mean, there's streets of gold. There's um, sun. It seems like it's sunny all the time. There's a river that we can probably jet ski in, right? New Jerusalem. There's a lot of, there's gonna be a lot of fun things to do. We tend to emphasize that and the fact that we don't have to get up and go to work every day. We maybe don't always realize that here in the Bible, what it's, what it's saying to us is that, that we will be continuing to serve Jesus. That there will be greater opportunities for faithfulness. Now, we're not exactly sure what this role, what it looks like, but there are some hints. Uh, Luke 19, I'll just give you a few references. Uh, uh, Jesus tells a similar parable and says the faithful servant over one city here and now, later on, will be in charge of 10 cities. So greater influence, greater authority. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that we are to judge angels, presumably in the age to come. 
Revelation 20 verse 4 says that we will reign with Christ. So again, the exact details are, are not clear, but we are going to continue serving Jesus and living for him in heaven. And so I think this is telling for us. By that I mean our reaction to this, I think, reveals our heart. Like if you hear that and you are slightly then disappointed about heaven, if you're like, oh, I didn't know I was going to do that, that says something about your heart to serve. On the other hand, if you're more excited about it, if you're like, man, that, that sounds great. That sounds excellent that I will have more opportunities to serve my Savior. That whatever I'm doing, I'll be able to glorify him all the more and even more fully because I won't have my sin and my laziness to hinder me. That, that I'll be able to fully magnify him with my entire being. That if you're excited about that, that also says something about your heart. And I think the difference between those two reactions probably has everything to do with how you see Jesus. It really reveals how you see your, your master. Do you see him as worthy of all praise? Worthy of your entire life of service? Or is your, or is your Christian service kind of a duty? Like, is it just something you're doing, but your passions, the things that consume you is, is elsewhere in the world, that that's what you can't wait to get to. See, it's, it's important that we examine these things because we need to know our heart. And because what we're about to see is that just because we consider ourselves to be a servant doesn't mean that we are faithful. Uh, in the next section, we see that there are some servants that actually despise their master and dishonor him, even though they think that they're, they're serving him. So here's uh, verse 45 and 46. Jesus says, But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now the unfaithfulness of those actions are, are obvious. The wickedness of the actions are obvious. They really signify a life of sin. Unrepentant sin, which is destructive, which is dishonorable. It hurts the people in our lives. It, it dishonors God, and the gruesomeness of the consequence is no accident. It's meant to be a foreshadow of the, the horrors of hell, of the consequences that are waiting for all who deny Jesus and choose to, to suffer for their own sins. Now, one of the main issues that people have with hell is this issue of fairness or justice. A lot of times, people will ask the question, and it's, it's a fair question. You know, how is it that that people can be sent to hell, especially if they don't even know Jesus, haven't heard about Jesus, haven't heard about the gospel. How, how, is, how is that just for God to do that? Well, the Bible gives some very clear answers. Uh, Romans 1 is the first answer, which, which makes very clear that everyone is justly condemned for our sin. Because everyone looks at the world around us and has the opportunity to respond to it and say, look, this world, the, the, the complexity of it, the beauty of it, the immensity of it, it must have been created. It must have a supernatural origin. And yet, what we see in the human heart is the capacity to find lots of other explanations for how this world came to be. And so in Romans 1, what it, it said is that because of our sinful heart, we exchange the glory of God for a lie. So everyone, even if we have not heard specifically about Jesus, if we are rejecting the idea of God, then we already are justly condemned in our sin. But what we see next in Luke 12 is interesting. Because it also tells us in the Bible that there are degrees of punishment in hell for the amount of knowledge that we had of God before we die. 
So let's look at that. Here's verses 47 and 48. Jesus says, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So you see the connection there. The amount of knowledge that the servants had, then the consequent was either more severe or less severe. This is how our judicial system works. Uh, for example, there's, uh, when someone kills someone else, right? that's, that's an, an act, that's a crime. But depending on the context, there's either a, a, a more severe or less severe consequence. So manslaughter is when you kill someone accidentally. That is punished less severely than secondary murder which is when you kill someone in, in the heat of the moment, and that's less severe than first-degree murder, first murder, when it's premeditated, when you, you've thought of it ahead of time. The point that Jesus is making here is that at the end, when he returns, everyone will be held to account because of their sin, but the more one knows about the gospel, the more deliberate their rebellion is, and the worse their punishment will be, which is why the worst consequences that are mentioned here are reserved for false teachers. You always see that when Jesus is teaching. He's always most severe, most, most harsh with the Pharisees, with the scribes, the religious leaders, because they knew the most. They knew the most about God's will. They had the Old Testament memorized. They were the ones who should have been leading people to God, but instead, they were leading people away from God. They claimed to be servants, but they were abusing their responsibility, hurting those under their care, betraying their master. What we see here is that Jesus is unapologetic about the severity of their consequence. Just as a good judge here on this earth is unapologetic about sentencing a convicted criminal. It's, it's justice that is given. And what we see here also is that God's universe is a universe of justice. But not just justice, meticulous justice. Precise justice. That there's no one at the end of the day who could say that God is somehow unfair or unjust. Everyone is held to account by what they know and the state of their hearts. So Jesus makes this clear. But notice also, he's saying this so that we are warned. I mean, that's his heart behind this. He wants to warn us. He, he wants us to be ready. Because it doesn't have to be that we suffer for the consequences of our sin. That's the whole reason he came in the first place. Right? That he would be the one who would go to the cross and take all of our unfaithfulness upon himself. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the Christian message. That even though we are not faithful servants, we can be counted as faithful. Here's a quote from, uh, from Pastor Philip Ryken writing about this passage. And I just, I love the way he states it. I think it's helpful for us. He says, Jesus Christ is the true and faithful servant who took all our unfaithfulness upon himself when he died on the cross and then buried it in the grave before coming back to life. Christianity is not a religion for faithful servants, but a gospel for unfaithful servants. See the difference? The, the, the bedrock of our readiness is not our service. We, we can't do it. We're all going to be unfaithful. Jesus knew that, so he came as a good master to serve us by laying down his life. So that means that once we, once we have been restored, once we've been made new in Christ, then because, because of our newness, then he calls us to serve. Not to earn our righteousness, not to earn anything, but to simply honor the one who gave us everything. And that's how this ends. Look, look at this. You probably heard this proverb that Jesus ends with. Uh, verse 48b. 
He says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So think about what he's, what he's saying there. The, the question I think that sh- we should be asking ourselves is, well, how, how much did God give us? Like, honestly, think of your life. Think of all that you have. Even if you're going through a season where it doesn't seem like you have much, stop and count all the things that you have. We have physical life. We have spiritual life if we're people of faith. We have redemption. We have identity. We have hope beyond the grave. We have gifts and skills. God has given us literally everything in our life. It's what it says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And so if he has given us everything, then what's required of us? Everything. Everything. Our entire lives are meant to be given as worship to God. Not because we need to pay him back, but because we experience more joy, more purpose, more more satisfaction when we use everything that God has given us for their purpose, which is to glorify him. See, when we do that, when we live in this way, that's when we're ready. That's when we can wake up every morning, start the day with prayer, Lord, use me for whatever you want me for, and then whenever Jesus were to come back that day, praise God. We would be ready. Not because we're perfect, our our perfection is in him, but because we're active. Because we're actually seeking to honor him with our lives. So here's our main point again. Jesus will return. There will be great blessings for those who are ready. Severe consequences for those who are not. The last question is the same question that really we should have been asking the whole time. Are we ready? Are we ready? If you're not, you can start today. Just come to Jesus in repentance. Come to faith and then ask him. I I really encourage you, just if you're uncertain about this, we're gonna respond in worship in a moment and part of that worship is prayer. Just stop. Just say, Jesus, can you help me to see where in my life I'm, I'm not being ready? I'm not faithful. Give me the courage. Give me the willingness to use everything that I have for you and see how he answers you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. Thank you for this, uh, this, in some ways, difficult teaching, Lord, about the nature of readiness. Lord, we have to confess, I confess, that I, I do not feel ready every moment of the day. And yet what a good reminder it is to know that you are the, the faithful master who has served us. It's your faithfulness that counts for us in the eyes of God. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who's feeling the weight of, of, of having to earn, of having to accomplish things themselves, I pray the gospel would lift us up. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to know our faith truly by your power, by your grace. And then I pray that we would just rejoice in the ability to serve you with our lives and help us to see how that would work. Help us to to see clearly those opportunities we have each and every day that we wouldn't just keep our heads down and do our thing, but that we would have our heads up and looking for those uh, who need to be blessed, who need the truth of the gospel. And uh, I pray indeed, Lord, that we would really see that everything is yours and that it's our joy to give it back to you in worship. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.